Today we are jumping into um, a part of the Joseph story that is a defining moment in Joseph's life. There are probably defining moments in your life. You could look back and you'd say, uh, when I was 12, when I was 18, when I was just married, when, when this thing happened and that changed the direction of my life. If that had not happened, I'd be over here, but instead I'm over here. Maybe it was something that happened to you. Maybe it's the way you responded to a situation, but that was a, a fork in the road for you. This is going to take place in Joseph's life today. Now, all of us here have some kind of fork in the road even this morning. We will hear the Word of God preached, and we will have to decide what are we going to do with it. Before, we, before I came up here, I was praying, Lord, for those whose hearts are hardened to the good news of Jesus, please soften their hearts this morning that they would be able to hear and receive the good news of Jesus and be born again. For those who are comfortable, who are sitting back and kind of coasting along, yes, they belong to Jesus, but they are they're just, just coasting, not particularly devoted, not taking risks, I pray, Lord, stir them up. For those of you who may be discouraged, feeling beaten down, feeling worn out, not just because you lost an hour of sleep last night, but just worn out in life, it is my prayer that you will be encouraged this morning, specifically encouraged to trust God greater, to not back off, to not back down, to not shut yourself down or shut yourself out of the risky things that he's calling you to, but that you would stand in him because he is the steadfast one. It's my prayer for you this morning. Our world is full of suffering. Every day, everywhere you turn, you can find suffering. Some of you have experienced great suffering that is, has basically, uh, it's, it's pummeled, it's pounded your soul. Maybe it has poisoned your heart. You've grown bitter because of it. And it's plagued your mind. It's just always that thing is running through your mind and it, it's like a plague. Maybe you did something that caused your suffering. You look back and you think, I was such a fool, this was a bad mistake, I shouldn't have done this, it has led to great suffering. Or maybe you were completely innocent in the situation. You did nothing to deserve it or cause it, but suffering came to you. I read an article this week that reported on a worldwide study by the World Health Organization, and it determined that Worldwide, an average of one out of every three women are physically or sexually abused in their lifetime. Now, I don't know how they define those things, but still, that number is staggering. The majority of those abuse cases happen at the hands of husbands and boyfriends, those whom they are choosing to be with. In the U.S., that number is one in four, 25%. Now, for young women who have entered into the world of romantic relationships, right? So they've entered into dating relationships. In the U.S., 25% of those young women in dating relationships will experience abuse at the hands of their significant other before they reach age 19. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This is sad. This is evil. Such unjust suffering should not be reality in our world. So how would, we, how would we go about trying to change that trend? Such an overwhelming 
number? Could we do anything about it? Now, if you happen to be the Baroness Jenny Jones of England, that is her title, Baroness, then you could have proposed this week, as she did, that part of the answer to this problem is to impose a 6 p.m. curfew on all men in the United Kingdom. She seriously stood before Parliament and said, our women will be safer, therefore no men should be allowed outside after 6 p.m. in the United Kingdom. Now, as crazy as that seems, the idea of involuntarily locking down a population in order to ensure the safety of some people shouldn't sound too foreign to us at this point, right? This is a logical outgrowth of the same kind of thing. Very different extreme thing, maybe, right? But no men outside after 6 p.m. because of this epidemic of violence against women. Why does this suffering happen in the first place? It is not the fault of the women and girls who receive this suffering. It is... In every case, at least partially the fault of the boys and shameful men who abuse them. But it's also bigger than that because we live in a, a, a society, a system that tends to view women and girls as objects to be, be acquired and used. Now, Christianity sees women very differently than that. Christianity tells us that every human, no matter the color of their skin, no matter the, the chromosomes that are in their bodies, no matter how healthy or strong or intelligent they are, everybody is, in, is created in the image of God. That we are all bearers of the image of God. And so therefore, we are all valuable, precious. We should all be protected. Abuse, wrongdoing should never come against us. But we live in a broken world. Men of God... I pray that we would be protectors, that we would stand against injustice, especially injustice done against women and children, that we would courageously stand and try to bring an end to the injustice that we have any kind of say in. Today, in the story that we're going to look at, the script gets flipped 180 degrees. There is going to be sexual harassment there's going to be abuse, there's unjust suffering, but it flows the opposite direction. It flows from a woman to a man, which is very uncommon, at least in our world today. But this is the case of the story that we're looking at. Two weeks ago, we looked at how 17-year-old Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was taken from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. He was sold to a guy named Potiphar, who is the, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. Influential guy, large influential household, Joseph, as a 17-year-old, is sold as a slave into that household. The people of Egypt are polytheistic. They believe in lots of different gods and goddesses. Imagine what it was like for Joseph, as a 17-year-old, who has been abandoned, betrayed by his family, who now has nobody around him who believes in the God that he knows is the one true God. He wakes up every morning to the sound of horns announcing the rising of the sun so that the Egyptian people can worship the sun as the sun god, Ra. At night, they worship the moon god. 
There are all kinds of gods and goddesses worshipped in Egypt. Even Pharaoh himself is considered to be a god and is to be worshipped. And there's Joseph, 17 years old, in that foreign culture, trying to learn the language, trying to learn the culture, trying to figure out how to be a good slave so he doesn't get beaten. And he's surrounded religiously by an entirely godless yet God-filled environment. How that must have worn him down. And yet we'll see in this passage how he remains committed to the one true God who chose his family to be the nation through which the blessing of the whole world would come. Joseph amazingly remembers God as we go through this story. So this is on page 33 in a pew Bible. Genesis 39, the whole chapter, 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now this is a surprising development. He is a slave. He's been abandoned and sold by his family. He's in a foreign country as a slave. And yet, as far as slaves go, this is a pretty good gig. He has risen to the point where he is now second in command in one of the most influential houses in Egypt. And when we say house or household, we're talking about dozens of people. There are servants all over the place. There's probably uh, lots of kids, maybe even grandkids coming soon. But this is a large household, probably in the wealthy section of town. And Joseph, the Hebrew slave, is second only to the master of the house. This is surprising to us. How did this happen? What's the secret to Joseph's success? If we go back to verse 2, we read this. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So it is God, we are told, that is the cause of Joseph's success, and good fortune. And we say, wait a minute. If God is with Joseph, how do we explain the beating, the stripping of the robe, the throwing in the pits, the selling to the slave traders, the selling to Potiphar in a pagan land? Where was God when Joseph was going through that unjust suffering? Is God fickle? Is he unreliable? Was God just not paying attention? And then he remembered Joseph, and now he's going to be with Joseph, and so Joseph is successful? What would it mean that God was with Joseph anyway? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once, so of course he's with Joseph. So why even point it out? That language is telling us that God is with Joseph in a special way, that he is an ally of Joseph, that he is working on Joseph's behalf, that he is a friend to Joseph 
and is working for Joseph's success and blessing. He's watching out for Joseph. He's causing Joseph to be successful, at least as successful as a slave can be. Moreover, we're told that Potiphar recognizes God's divine work in Joseph's life. It's written right there by Moses for us. It says, he he saw that God was with Joseph and that God was blessing everything that Joseph did. And so Potiphar did, not out of religious devotion, but just out of financial wisdom. He said, if this man is blessed in everything, I'm going to take everything I have and I'm going to put it under his authority so that my stuff gets blessed and grows. This is very similar to what happened with Joseph's father, Jacob, when he was 20 years serving his father-in-law, Laban. Laban was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He was constantly changing the wages of Jacob, but Jacob served faithfully, and we're told that God blessed Laban because Jacob was serving in his house. It's the same thing that's going on here. Potiphar doesn't deserve the blessing. Potiphar's not honoring God. Potiphar's not doing things to please God. He's simply lending authority to Joseph. And because God is with Joseph, God is blessing Potiphar's house. Let's go on. Second half of six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, to be with her. And I have to say at this point, finally, of all the guys that we've been looking at in the story of Genesis, here is a man who stands upright. We look back at great-grandpa Abraham, who, when he was in Egypt, feared for his life and so lied about his wife, endangering her in order to save his skin. And then Isaac, the son of Abraham, does the same thing with the king in the land of Canaan in order to save his life at the expense of his wife. Jacob, the father of Joseph, has four wives. His house is full of deceit of pain, even of violence. He has done a lousy job of raising his sons, of standing upright as a father. And yet somehow, Joseph stands upright here. Joseph, he's a a genuine hero in this story. He's, He's pointing us to the great hero, Jesus. There's so many parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus on earth. But I just have to say, finally, we get a man who will stand up. Now, Potiphar's wife is throwing herself at young Joseph. He may still be a teenager. He may have just transferred into his 20s. We don't know how long he's been a slave in the house of Potiphar. But anyway, he is a young man in his prime. His hormones are at full speed. A wealthy, powerful, experienced, probably beautiful woman is pursuing him like a lioness pursuing, pursuing her prey. Now, for many, that would be a dream come true. 
But for Joseph, this is a nightmare. He is repulsed. He is disgusted by the sin that she suggests. Joseph gives two reasons for rejecting her advances. He says it would be a betrayal of his master. And I have to wonder how those words must have stung her. He's basically saying, I am choosing to be a faithful servant of my master as you are being an unfaithful servant or unfaithful wife to your husband. Slap across the face there. The second reason that he gives is that it would be a sin against God. It's not just a practical thing. He's not just worried about getting in trouble with his master. But he sees this ultimately as a sin against God. And I'm just so thankful, again, that we have this guy in the story standing upright. He's getting it right. He's got both sides of this right. He knows who God is. He knows God's character. He knows what is expected of the people of God to live with the kind of character that God himself has. He knows that he belongs to God. He knows that he's called by God to live a faithful, pure, and upright life. And so we say, way to go, Joseph. You got it right. He is a good example of resisting temptation, of staying pure and obeying God. Every single one of us faces temptation every day. Many of those temptations we're just unaware of. They're just little things designed by our enemy to slowly wear us away or slowly turn our course a little bit in one direction. But sometimes there's those big things, like in Joseph's life, where it's clear to him, I can choose the right or I can choose the wrong. I'm going to choose the right because this is what God has said. I want to pause in our story for just a minute and just share with you guys a few key passages to understanding temptation and being able to resist temptation when it comes to you, because it will come even today. So 1 Peter 5.8, Peter, who failed to resist temptation many times in his life, has been transformed by Jesus and now looks back as an older man and he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy, a powerful enemy, and he wants to destroy you. We don't tend to live our lives that way. We tend to ignore that. We tend to think, yeah, the world's a messed up place and I'm going to have troubles and temptations and things like that. But the the thought of having an actual enemy who, like a lion, wants to eat you, that's usually not in our minds. But Peter's saying that is the reality. And so therefore, be sober-minded, stay alert, be diligent, be watchful. Now, if you're a Christian, if you have been born again, then these next few verses are a real encouragement. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is, there aren't any new surprises in Satan's playbook. It's all been done before. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So there's no temptation that is so strong that you are without a choice of whether or not you resist it. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I am thankful that in that verse, we get the statement that God is faithful. Right? So this is, this is part of the truth of Christianity. You are not 
tasked with being faithful so that God will accept you. But God loves you, sacrifices for you, offers you the gift of forgiveness and new life, and His faithfulness then is given to you as a gift. It's not your faithfulness that you're dependent on, it's His faithfulness. And so I I don't just stand up and say here, resist the temptation, be better, try harder. God is faithful. It is His faithfulness that allows us to resist this temptation. 1 John 4.4. 4. John is he's writing to Christians and he's explaining uh, some things about the evil spirits who are trying to foul them up. And he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That is those spirits who are against them. For he who is in you, speaking of the Holy Spirit living inside every Christian, is greater than he who is in the world. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. There's no temptation that will come against you that isn't, hasn't already been conquered even by Jesus himself. And God, the Holy Spirit, is living inside of you. You do not have to cave to any temptation. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, to, to be clear, every sin is equally condemnable by God. So here's the list of all the possible sins, all right? And you did some of them, but you didn't do others. And you may look at yourself and compare yourself to other people and say, my list is better than the other person's list. But if you have anything on your list of sin, then you are rightfully condemned by God. Each sin makes you equally guilty before God. But, but different sins have different consequences, especially in how they affect our lives. And so Paul is pointing it out here. He's saying, look, there's all kinds of different sins, but, but sexual immorality is this, it's this special thing. It's, you, you're actually sinning against your own body. He's saying, wake up. This doesn't make sense. And he says, flee away from it. Now, we don't tend to flee from sin, whether it's sexual sin or any other kind of sin. We, we tend to try to get as close to the edge of the cliff as we can and hang our toes off Not fall off, but just see how close we can get. And yet Paul says, flee from it. Run away from the edge of that cliff. Don't flirt with the edge of the cliff. Same guy writing to Timothy, who was a young man serving as a pastor. He says this, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Joseph did that. He was full of youthful passions, and yet he fled from the temptation. He fled from the fulfillment of those passions, and he lived righteously. How many days did this temptation go on? We're not told. Potiphar's wife is inflamed with lust. She is demanding that she get what she wants. The tension builds and builds Joseph insults her. The tension builds more until finally it melts down. And I wonder if you can finish this line. Hell hath no fury like a... 
A woman scorned. Any idea who said that? A man? That's a good guess, yes. Thanks, Jason. Most people would say Shakespeare. It's actually not. It's a guy named William Congreve. He wrote it in a poem called The Morning Bride. Not morning as in a.m., but morning as in mournful. 1697. He, he writes this. The actual wording's a little different. He says, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. He's, he's describing a situation like what Joseph is in right now. This woman, Potiphar's wife, has been claiming her love, her lust for him. And he has, he has repulsed her. He has turned her away. And so what was affection turns to hatred. Now, men, we are just as guilty of this. Mr. Congreve apparently has something going on in his life that he wants to make a point about this. Maybe he's having a bad week with his wife. But at least in our story this morning, it is the woman, Potiphar's wife, whose affection turns to hatred. And she rises up in vengeance. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, I, I don't imagine him actually fleeing naked. He's probably got some kind of undergarment on, but his outer clothes he has left behind, making it pretty easy to identify him later on. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. For Potiphar's wife, truth does not matter. She wanted something, she was going to get it, and if Joseph refused, she will use whatever untruth she can to take revenge. She accuses Joseph of the very thing that she herself is guilty of. She puts on this righteous mask, and and she accuses her husband of causing this problem. The Hebrew that you brought into this house, husband of mine, It's your fault. You brought him in. He has attacked me. This idea of coming in to to laugh at me is some weird language thing, but it's obvious that she's accusing him of attempted rape and mocking her. She cried out. He got scared, and he ran away. It is... It's sad, and yet it's humorous at the same time. We can very easily do the same thing. We can be guilty of something, and yet we can feel outrage about somebody doing that very same thing. Or we can publicly condemn someone who's doing something when it serves our purposes, and then just look the other way when it doesn't serve our purposes. At the risk of offending, there's a great example of that playing out right now 
in the news. Vice President Harris very publicly, boldly stood out against then prospective justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was accused of sexual abuse. Day after day, she condemned him. Said, believe the accuser, don't believe him. Now, when New York Governor Cuomo is stacking up his giant pile of accusers, he's up to six now, Harris is completely silent. Why is that? It's because, I realize this is going to sound judgmental, it's not about justice. She is not personally concerned with justice for these women who are making the accusations. She's using a situation, using a crisis for her advancement. Now, Basically, almost every politician probably does that to different extents. That's an easy one to pick on because it's so in the news right now. But you and I, we do the same thing. When it serves us, we will condemn others and we will ignore our own sin or our previous approval of someone else's sin. Potiphar's wife does this here. In revenge, she turns against Joseph, wrongfully accuses him, in order to soothe her wounded pride and establish power in the household. Why do I say that? Because she, she leverages this crisis in order to gain and establish and secure power in the household. Husband, you are the one that's at fault. You brought this Hebrew in here. This is what he has done. She's doing this publicly. He's being knocked down. She's rising up in power in the household. She is a shrewd woman. To have her wits about her in such a way that she can take down Joseph and knock down her husband in power at the same time. It's really pretty impressive. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. No trial. No due process, no chance to defend himself, to speak on behalf of himself. At least we should be thankful he was not beaten or executed. But this is injustice. Poor Joseph was being a great servant, the model servant. He was living in upright character. He was being a blessing to his master's household. And what did it get him? Got in prison. Where is God in this injustice? What happened to the statement, God was with Joseph? Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So, God is with Joseph and is continuing to love and bless and even prosper Joseph, even as he's falsely condemned, he's wrongfully imprisoned. God is riding along on this roller coaster of Joseph's life. God's with him the whole way, top to bottom, speeding down the hill, screaming, God is with Joseph that whole way. If you have spent much time listening to folks like um, Benny Hinn 
or Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen or other preachers of the false so-called prosperity gospel, this story doesn't sit well with you because it promises falsely that if you are with God, God is with you, then things will go well for you. You will prosper always. You will just continually move up. And the Joseph story stands starkly in contrast to that false gospel. Joseph is simultaneously wrongfully imprisoned and in the presence of God who is for him. Verse 22. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So it's like the second verse of the same song, right? Unjust treatment, imprisonment or enslavement, faithful service, God is with him, rises him up, he becomes second in command, not now in the household of Potiphar, but in the prison. Look at that last sentence. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And we might sarcastically say, well, except for being rejected by his family, sold as a slave, unjustly imprisoned, wrongfully accused, all that stuff. He didn't really succeed in those things, right? But those are things that are done to him. The verse says, everything he did, he, in everything he did, he succeeded. So it's the things that he's doing that he is succeeding in. And that's a big difference. Are you responsible for the things that are done to you by others? No, you're not. Whether it's good things to you or bad things to you, you are not responsible for what other people do. Are you responsible for how you respond to what other people do to you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So how should we respond if we find ourselves in a situation that sounds a little bit like Joseph's situation? What if we are living a basically good life and we're serving our boss or um, being a a faithful husband or wife and we're we're doing things the right way and yet we suffer unjustly. Are there other examples in the Bible other than Joseph's story to help us with this? Are there any direct words to encourage us? Yes, there are. We're going to go to the Apostle Paul, way forward in the New Testament. He, as the greatest missionary probably in Christian history, spent most of his adult life traveling around the Mediterranean region, and at one point he finds himself in the city of Philippi. We'll put it on the map here so you can see where that is. In Philippi, he goes in, he preaches the gospel, the good news that you can be forgiven of your sins because Jesus paid the price on your behalf, that you can be reconciled to a perfect holy God and not face judgment by God because Jesus took that judgment for you. He proclaimed that gospel, and some people joyfully embraced it, others rejected it. And rejected him. And he finds himself with his traveling buddy Silas in prison. We pick up the story here in Acts as they are singing and praying out loud in prison. Acts 16 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them. They took them out. They asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. That's one of the new converts in the city. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. Now, I love this passage. I think it's really cool that they are in prison, singing their hearts out, praying their hearts out, and the prisoners are listening, and that God miraculously delivers them, yet they stay, and they share the gospel with the jailer. He comes to Christ. His family comes to Christ. They're baptized even that night. I love that. I love that they took their suffering and they turned it into something that was glorious on God's behalf. And it was good for God's people. It resulted in the growth of God's kingdom. But I also love that they didn't just act like doormats. See, in the Roman system of government, they knew that they had the right to a trial to face their accusers. They were denied that right. They were they, they didn't have the due process. They're just thrown in jail after being beaten. And when those who in charge of the town who, who had done that decided, well, we're going to let them go today, they don't just slip off in silence. Within that system of government, they stand up and they say, you have violated your laws. We are Roman citizens. You broke the law by imprisoning us without a trial, even bringing charges. You come and apologize to us. And then we will leave. Why are they doing that? Is that pride on their, on their part? No, it's not. It's them ensuring as much as they can that that brand new baby church will be able to thrive in Philippi. They're saying, look, you live under a system of governance, of laws, and justice has been broken here, and we're not going to let you get away with it. We're going to stand publicly and force you to follow your own laws. Not because they wanted something for themselves, but on behalf of others. And I think that's beautiful. In 2016, this man on the picture here, Chike Uzabunum, Uzabunum, it's really hard to say, was a student at Georgia Gwinnett College. 
He had immigrated from Nigeria. He was a Christian. He still believed that the United States valued religious freedom and the First Amendment. He also loved Jesus, and he wanted to tell others about Jesus that could save them. So one day in 2016, he's standing on the college campus where he's a student, and he's handing out Christian literature, and he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people. He is stopped by the campus police. He is informed that he is not allowed to hand out religious literature or speak about Jesus without first obtaining a permit from the college and then speaking only in two free speech zones on the campus. He jumps through the hoop. He gets the permit. He goes to the free speech zone, which, by the way, of those two free speech zones, they, they make up a total of 0.0015% of the land of the college. There's teeny little places where you're allowed to talk freely without offending others. Because George Gwinnett had, had bought into this idea that college is supposed to be a place where your already formed opinions are built up and encouraged rather than challenged with truth. College is meant to tear down the things that are wrong in your head and build up the things that are right. And yet college today and most colleges is doing the exact opposite. We're simply reinforcing the wrong things that we have in people's heads. And so the students of Georgia Gwinnett can't be bothered with someone presenting an opinion that is different from what they think is true. So you've got to stick those people in free speech zones in order to quiet them. So he, he gets the permit. He goes to the free speech zone. He starts sharing the gospel with people. A student is offended, calls the police officer, and he's shut down again. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled on his case. And amazingly, it came down in favor of him eight to one. Now, it should be really troubling that the one who objected was the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who claims to be a hero, an advocate of religious liberty, but eight to one, the Supreme Court said, you can't make a free, free speech zone and say that you can only say certain things if you're going to say them in that area. Now, he sued for monetary damages, one dollar. Why? He's not trying to get rich off of this. He's not saying, I suffered unjustly and therefore I deserve to get half a million dollars. No, he's saying, just like Paul and Silas, he's saying, for those who are coming after me, like he had other students that said to him and testified, we didn't speak about Jesus because we saw how he was treated. For those students coming after me, I had to stand. I had to make the point. I had to hold our leaders accountable to the law that they are under. He is a hero, in my opinion. Yes, sir. You know him personally? Really? Yeah. So he's been in your home, prayed with him. That's cool. I wish I would have mentioned to you earlier that I was going to talk about him. It's, it's, it's not fake. Okay. All right. All right. That was way back in 2016, but decided this last week. 
Last month, February 16th, Pastor James Coates of Alberta, Canada was arrested. His crime was leading his church and preaching during the province's COVID lockdown. He spent two weeks in solitary confinement. His wife and children have not been allowed to see him. He has been denied bail because he refused the conditions of the bail. They said, we'll let you out on bail if you promise not to preach and lead your church. And he said, I can't do that. And so he's stuck without bail. He expects to spend at least the next two months in prison waiting for his trial. This is in Canada. This is not the USSR. This is not China. This is not Afghanistan. Why? Why would he stand up this way? And how has he responded? He has responded with gentleness. He has been cooperative. He actually turned himself in when he found out he was going to be arrested. He has responded in a Christ-like way, except that he doesn't go along with their ridiculous demands. He's been gentle, except for that. The last sermon that he preached before being arrested, he went through Romans 13, and he very clearly laid out the, the role, the responsibility, and the limits of the authority of government. He did it in a Christ-honoring, gentle, yet strong way. That was the last thing he got to preach before he was arrested. Now, this next picture is a picture of a guy who is an elder. Let's go to the next one. An elder at his church. This guy is tasked with the job of standing up the week after his pastor is arrested and either preaching or shutting the church down. All right, so, Russell, John, this is you guys, right? Imagine being him. He did an awesome job. He stood up, he boldly, calmly, gently preached the word of God sharing the gospel. Both of these guys, are they know that the, the authorities, the police officers are, are listening and they're sharing the gospel with them, pleading with them to turn to faith in Christ. It's beautiful. One more example. Remember back in September when some Christians in Moscow, Idaho, were having an outdoor prayer and worship service and some of them were arrested for not wearing masks outside in a worship service? Did they kick, scream? Did they resist violently? Did they make a big scene? No, they calmly reasoned with the officers who were just doing their job. When they were arrested, they went calmly. They had no control over what was being done to them. They had self-control to respond in a Christ-like and gentle way. They knew that they were breaking the local laws. And yet they honored the great lawgiver who gives authority to all governments as the top authority in their life. Our constitutional system has things built in to allow us freedom of religion, freedom of speech, resist those who would be tyrants over us. But you can't count on that system always being there for you. That system is under attack. And if it crumbles, how will you respond? If you lose your First Amendment rights, if you lose the right to worship freely, to tell others publicly about Jesus, how will you respond? Some are working hard in that direction. Last week, 
Sharon Gustafson, there's a picture of her. Next picture here. She looks like she'd fit in well here. She was fired by President Biden. She served as a lawyer for what is called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Her job was to defend employees of either the government or private corporations who were fired unjustly. Some of the cases that she had to defend as part of her job, the the clients had been fired because they refused to endorse the LGBT plus movement that their employers were pushing them towards. One of those cases was actually pretty locally where Kroger was forcing their employees to wear a particular pen that endorsed the LGBT plus movement. She defended them, saying that, no, this is, this is their constitutional right to not endorse something that they don't support. She was asked to resign. She refused to resign. And so she was fired. The woman tasked with defending those who are fired because they refuse to violate their religious convictions and their First Amendment rights, is herself fired. That is the trajectory that many in power today are trying to push our country towards. Are you ready to stand with Jesus? See, some of you honestly shaking your heads, no, I'm not ready. How would you get ready First, let's look at this. First Peter 3.13. I know this is going a while. I'm going to try to wrap this up real quickly. First Peter 3.13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, you could say the government officials or Potiphar himself. He's there to harm us, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. If you are mistreated, if you are unjustly suffering on behalf of Jesus, people will ask you, why are you standing with Christ? Why not just be quiet? Why not just slide into the background? Are you ready to give an answer for that, as Peter says here? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Not as revolutionaries, not in violence, not in falsehood, not in rough, tearing down talk. Boy, that's convicting. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile, that means hate, those who hate your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you suffer for doing evil, you deserve it. If you suffer for doing good, that's unjust. And yet Paul says it's better to have that injustice than to do evil and suffer because of it. Are you devoted to Jesus to the degree that you can stand with him in gentleness and yet in strength, should even your civil safety net be removed? How would you get ready to stand that way? If people, people are losing their jobs left and right right now because they will not go along with the game. 
They will not say, I believe this, when they actually believe something else. And people are losing their jobs. If you lose your job because of that, how will you respond? If people in your family shun you, turn you away, don't invite you to Christmas because you have said, no, I believe this is true and I'm going to stand with it, not being a jerk, but gently yet strongly standing, how will you respond? Let me suggest that there's maybe two ways to get ready for this. First, practice. How do you practice? You submit every area of your life to the Lordship of Jesus. If you think, I'm just going to kind of live my life with some Jesus, He's saved my soul, He's blessed me, all that. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. And then if it ever comes to it, I think I'm going to have the courage to stand up boldly and gently for Him. You're, you're fooling yourself, right? You, you wouldn't approach a sports contest that way. You, you wouldn't say, I'm not going to practice all year long and then I hope I'm going to win the state playoffs. That doesn't work. So every day, the decisions that you're making, the way that you submit yourself to Jesus as Lord of your life is practice for that moment that may come where you must stand in boldness and strength. What are you practicing for? You're practicing in one way. Which direction are you practicing? Secondly, I would say, you can't do this. You can't. You can't stand boldly, humbly, gently, strongly in righteousness and uprightness. You can't do it on your own. It is only Christ in you that can do it. So Paul, Peter, they can rejoice in their suffering knowing that it is Christ working through them for God's greater plan. Joseph can flee temptation. He can suffer honorably in unjust imprisonment because God was with him. Not because he's a great guy. Not because he is the perfect example of a young man fleeing temptation, but because God is with him. It comes down to God not Joseph. Jesus is the fuel for our courage. Without him, your courage is hopeless. Jesus is the source of our strength. Without him, you will not stand. One of the most common Bible passages memorized is Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is true. That is the Word of God. We tend to apply it to little things like, I'm going to win this competition. I'm going to win the spelling bee because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's really pointed at these bigger things. I can lose my job, and yet I can honor Christ, and I can stand upright, and I can speak the truth in gentleness because Christ is in me, strengthens me. It all goes back to that fundamental gospel truth. You're not good enough. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't be the shining light that God calls you to be. It's Jesus on your behalf doing it. You partner with him, but it is him. We need him. May we practice. May we be ready. May we rely on him, not on our own strength, not on our own goodness.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph and the, the great example that he is. I thank you that he was nothing unless you were with him. Lord, I, I pray for our congregation. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, uh, that you would supernaturally make us stronger, bolder, more gentle, more loving, more committed to the truth. Lord, I know there are people in this congregation who are afraid to stand up, afraid to say something to that particular person. They're, they're afraid of the consequences. Lord, I pray that you would give them confidence that only comes in you. Lord, not that they would just rise up and win an argument, but that they would be able to, in truth, gently proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, even if they're hated for it. Lord, we confess, as your people, that we run after all kinds of things that are actually weakening us and distracting us from the most important things. And so, remind us, Lord, turn our eyes, point us towards you, help us to know that, that this is all about you, and, and help us to, to practice in submitting ourselves to you in the little things so that we might be able to do it in the big things. In Jesus' name, amen.